So, this morning, we're going to continue through the Gospel of Mark. We are um, going to be in chapter 9 this morning. And it's a passage which is referred to as the Transfiguration. A lot of you might be familiar with that. It's this, it's this event in which Jesus leads his apostles, a few close apostles, up onto the mountain and becomes transformed before them. And we're going to get into that, but it's this, it's this, this picture where Jesus essentially pulls back the curtain into the kingdom and gives the apostles as well as us this unfiltered view of his glory and divinity. It's uh, an event that's recorded here in Mark, but also in Matthew 17 and Luke 9. And each of those accounts gives us a couple different details that we're going to blend in and make sure we get the whole picture. But what we also know is this was a formative experience, particularly for Peter, who was one of those apostles that went up there, also for John, and James, who didn't write a gospel, but I'm sure it affected him too. But in 2 Peter... 1, 16 through 18, the Apostle Peter, writing many, many years after this event, he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter laid into his ministry far down the road, removed from this, refers back to this experience as, as the, the credibility for his, for his witness. I saw these things. I heard these things. I was there. I saw Jesus glorified. I heard the voice from the cloud. In 1 John 1, 5, John doesn't reference the account as literally as Peter does, but in 1 John 1, 5, he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And while this is certainly a spiritual reference, it also seems to literally refer to this particular event and how we're going to see Jesus described in the Gospels. So let's get into that. I'm going to read uh, the first 13 verses. That sounds like a lot. It goes by pretty quick of uh, chapter 9. So if you want to follow along, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And again, in another translation, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, 
he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Another translation would say, and they understood at that point that he was talking about John the Baptist. So if we remember from last week, a lot happens in chapter 8. It's typical with the Gospel of Mark. Every chapter is just jam-packed with all these different events. And it opens with Jesus feeding the 4,000. Then they take off, and he, Jesus gives them this warning about the leaven of the Pharisees. You might remember that. And there was some misunderstanding about that. Is that because we didn't bring bread, or why is that? And he's like, no, we're talking about their sin, their presumption them demanding a sign from me. And he, and he goes through that. Don't you remember the feeding of the 4,000? We remember the progressive healing of this blind man. And it's an unusual miracle. And Sean did a fantastic job last week of bringing us through that. It's this progression where at first he, he rubs his eyes and he takes the, the saliva and, and loosens them up. And then he says, I see men like trees. But then we see later it's this progression to where Jesus gives him full clarity. We see this amazing account of Peter's enlightened confession of Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus will commend him for that. And right after that, it seems like (laughs) Jesus begins to talk about his suffering and his death. And Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, this should never happen to you, Lord. And Peter says, get behind me, Satan. And then finally, it ends with Jesus outlining the cost of true discipleship. And I do want to just read those, other, those last couple verses, because really verse 1 of chapter 9 is a kind of a continuation of that discourse that he's having with the disciples there. That's kind of why there seems like that. But let me read just the last few verses of chapter 8, just to remind us. And starting in verse 34, he says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then verse 1, and there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom. So Jesus again, ending in verse 8, states in the starkest terms that belief in him is exclusive of belief in anything else. To deny him is to be denied eternal life. But to confess him is to lose your life in this world. All your opinions, all your strength, your entitlement, everything. And that's what Jesus is trying to hammer home to the disciples here and to the crowds which he had gathered to him. 
that there's no profit, no gain in anything other than following him. But the apostles, like the Jews of their day, were consumed with their own society, their government, their economy, and their circumstances. They filtered everything through that temporary lens. And in so doing, they missed who Jesus really was, what true rewards were, what the real answers were, what really matters, and what the kingdom of God really consisted of. So he's essentially saying here, don't follow me to get something you think you want. Rather, follow me to gain everything that you never imagined was possible. And Jesus is not teaching something new here. This has been the heart of God since he first created man on earth, to have that simple, pure relationship with his creation. And in Psalm 73, 25, 23, uh, 25 and 26, one of my kind of new favorite memory verses. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail. I would say they will fail. <laughs> my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. And that's the heart of God since the very beginning. Now, we have to be honest with ourselves. Is that something that we can say? I can't always say that from my own heart. I can say that first part, I think, fairly readily. I don't have something else in heaven that I'm looking to. I don't have another God or some other deity that, that I've imagined or made up or that I've bought into. But this second part, because Jesus is, I mean, the Lord here, David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's heaven and earth. And these two things are united in this. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And that's a, often a hard place to get to. We're inundated by other things that the world wants us to desire other than him. And I think we all fall prey to it at some point. But to get to that point, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's what Jesus is trying to say is the path to eternal life. And we as Christians, we understand that. We understand that's the goal. I think sometimes we fail to understand or to believe that that's attainable. That is attainable. God wouldn't have said it if it wasn't possible. How different would the world be had Adam and Eve bought into that? How different could our lives be, our marriages and our jobs and everything, if we had that heart? But they, like we, at times, are holding on to this false hope and the desire, I think particularly in our culture today, in our society, in America, for those of us that love the Lord, holding on to a hope maybe for a political solution, a military solution. But in the Jews' day, that was never God's plan. It never materialized. And the Jews that held on to that, they missed Christ. So back to Peter, because a lot of this is precipitated by Peter's arguing with Jesus about what God's plan was for them. And I imagine by this time, P Peter must be feeling pretty defeated. He was riding high for a bit, right? I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. I mean, so he goes from the king of the kingdom, or keys of the kingdom, and having this just, I mean, imagine how he must have felt. On that confession, I will build my church. You are the stone. 
the foundation, that confession, that faith, that understanding of who I am. And he goes from that to get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. His heart and his, fle- and his flesh had failed. Yet the rock would be his portion. I love how Sean last week brought out the fact that Peter wasn't arguing with Jesus because he thought he knew better than Jesus. He was, he, he was in love with Jesus. He didn't want to imagine that something that horrific could happen to his Savior, that he loved the Lord, that he did that with the best of intentions, I think. I don't think he did that out of pride or anything, maybe out of fear, out of doubt. But in not accepting that word from Christ, in rebuking Jesus and not accepting his word, Peter had essentially become Jesus' adversary, a hindrance, Jesus calls him, and had allowed the leaven of the Pharisees to cloud his vision. He was not ready to take up his cross and follow. He was not willing to accept this kind of Christ. He had an idea of what the Messiah was. He wasn't willing to accept, at that point, a Messiah that would die and be tortured for his sins. But he would. He would come to that understanding. And like the blind man who could only first see trees, Jesus would clarify his vision and bring it into focus. And really, this was a process in Peter's life like I think it is with most of us throughout his whole life. Really, we don't see a change, a big change, until Pentecost, where God's Spirit filled Peter, and he was able to to put all that stuff together and go forward in the will of God. So if it's not happening right away for you guys, don't give up. It is a process. I think it was a process with Peter. But we have hope that that is God's plan. The first verse of chapter 9, again, this continuation, but... After he says all these really hard and difficult things to understand, you've got to give your life away. Take up your cross and follow me. If, you don't, um, if you're embarrassed of me, I'm going to be embarrassed of you. And these are really hard things to hear. Jesus doesn't shy away from that in our life. Jesus will tell us the very hard things that we need because he loves us and is trying to save us. But he always leaves us with hope. And I think this first verse says, but... Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's this really hopeful thing. Jesus is such a great leader. And I hope that that I can be that kind of leader. Often I'm not. Often I leave my kids in a sense of hopelessness. Here's what you've done wrong, and here's what you need to get better. And that's pretty much the end of it. (laughs) Jesus doesn't leave us in that place. He always says, but there's some here, some of you, who will see the kingdom of God before you even die. So back to uh, well, essentially what he's about to show Peter, James, and John is what we're missing out on. How much we're missing when we trade down and seek those things of the world. So back to this, verses 2 through 8, we're going to kind of look at. The first thing we see is that after six days... Jesus leads them up on a high mountain. And as I read from 2 Peter earlier, Peter refers to this as a holy mountain. And I think he's referring to it that way because of the events that transpired in the past. I don't know if this mountain, I don't think this mountain was considered holy before this event. Some believe um, this mountain historically to be Mount Tabor in northern Israel. 
And if you go to Israel today, I'm sure some of you, has anybody been here? I asked this recently. Been to Israel? I have not. Uh, but been to Mount Tabor? There's a massive church up there that is called the Church of the Transfiguration. And that's where they believe that this event actually took place. Others believe that this may have happened on Mount Hermon, which is another mountain that's a taller mountain and also in northern Israel. We don't know the exact mountain. There's a giant church on one, but I don't know if that means anything. But both are possibilities. But both of these are high mountains. The word transfigured is from the same word that we get the word metamorphosis. I'm sure you guys have heard that one, you know, in reference to a, um, you know, a butterfly or something like that, literally changing from one form, from the caterpillar to something entirely different. And that's the word that is used here to describe what's happening with Jesus in this transfiguration. It's an interesting word because it's only used two other times in Scripture that's not referring to this particular account. And it's one of them, Paul uses it both times, and one is in Romans 12, 2. The other one is in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and you can look those up on your own time. But it's used to describe essentially our renewal and transformation when we're filled with the Holy Spirit from one form to another, from the form of Adam to the form of Christ, from being shaped like and smelling like the world to being transformed into the image of our Lord. Paul would use the phrase, we're being transformed, we're metamorphosizing from one glory to to another glory, and on and on and on until we meet him face to face. Jesus was changed before us. The change that he experienced was more of a, of a retroactive type of transformation where he peeled away his humanity and he allowed them to see his full spiritual essence, if you would, the glory that he had with them, with his Father in heaven before he took on the form of sinful flesh. But with us, it's different. We're being transformed again from glory to glory to glory. And in looking at that, I asked myself, is that happening in my life? Am I being transformed? Do people that knew me 20 years ago see me differently? Would they see me transfigured? Would they see you transfigured? Two years ago, 20 years ago, two weeks ago. What is God is wanting? God is a dynamic God. And we've all heard that, that um, saying, we're all changing. We're either changing kind of for the better or for the worse. And I've seen that so often in my lives, especially as we get older. Those, those quirks, those bad habits we have, if they're not changed by God, they're just going to play out in some way that we don't, we're not maybe as crazy about. Um, and there's a lot of examples I could get to that. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody but in any case we are to be changing and just to ask ourselves if we see that in light of this dramatic transformation that's happening in jesus christ on that mount and and paul is choosing to use that same word in the epistles in romans and corinthians we should be experiencing some sort of dramatic change drawing closer and closer to him so if that's not happening in your lives that's what God wants for you. If it is happening, God wants more and more and more of that. So, as he's transfigured, completely unexpectedly, I mean, this just comes, we're so used to reading this account, those of us that have been, um, you know, students of the word for a time. 
But it's, it's just, it's completely out of left field. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are there with them on the mountain. And we really need to get a handle on kind of how radical that is, how, how incredibly wild that is for Moses and Elijah to be there speaking to Jesus when the apostles are there. Moses, the lawgiver, the friend of God, who spoke to God, who humbled the great kingdom of Egypt by performing these awe-inspiring signs and wonders. Egypt at that day, the greatest power on earth. Elijah, the one who could call down fire from heaven whose prayers could shut the, shut the heavens from rain for years, whose prayers, um, who was a prophet, a healer, and a slayer of the pagan priests of Baal, who single-handedly took on an entire occultic system and brought it to its knees. I mean, these are the great men of God who had done so much, but who had ultimately failed, who had ultimately failed. Moses, disobedient struck, and disobedience struck the rock in the desert, that rock being a symbol of Christ. He never entered the promised land, and the people of Israel never to this day have received the full inheritance that God intended for them. Elijah crumbled and fled in fear of Jezebel. The people of uh, Israel were eventually scattered and taken again into captivity by the Assyrians and Babylonians. Yet, here they are. Here they are talking to Jesus face to face, restored and glorified. Moses at one point in um, Exodus, he says, Lord, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. That's verse 33, 18. And God says, you can't look at me and live. If you look at me, you'll die. But I'll go by you. I'll slide by you. I'll show you a portion of myself. That's the best I can do. And just because of that, Moses' face shone to where he had to put a veil over his face. But now, now, here he is on the mount speaking face to face with Jesus Christ. Elijah, there was a time after he fled where he was hiding in a cave, and God does these great signs to kind of get his attention. He asks him, why are you here? What are you doing? Why have you run away? And he hears a still, small voice. But now, he's having a conversation with God. And this speaks so much to Jesus' grace, that despite their failures, he chooses, he chooses to share and counsel with these great saints. And so is his nature, to share and to have a relationship, to be close to those who love and serve him. This is something that we've really got to get across to a fallen world, that God is not a God who wants to keep us at arm's length, God is the God that wants to forgive and restore and bring us in to his plan, make us a part of his plan, despite how many times we've messed up. And uh, such a fantastic picture of that. Now, I do question, how did the apostles recognize that this was Moses and Elijah? I mean, we're not, they, they, we're not told that they introduced themselves and I wonder if it was their appearance, if it was some sort of spiritual revelation. But this is before the age of, you know, social media and selfies and all that. They had never seen what Moses and Elijah looked like. And I kind of, I wonder if, if Elijah's still wearing the hair shirt and the crazy belt and all that kind of, I mean, or if Moses has his staff or if there's something that's identifying them. It's just something to kind of think about. 
Another question, what were they talking about? What could this conversation have been about? And in the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't tell us. But it does tell us in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke, he says that they were speaking to Jesus of his departure. And that word departure, interestingly, is translated exodus. Exodus. They were talking about the exodus. They spoke to Jesus of the time when Jesus would finally lead the captives to freedom. Where they had failed in their earthly missions, Jesus would succeed. Where they were limited by their sin and mortality, Jesus would excel in his perfect sacrifice. Where their great signs and wonders and, and all the wonderful works they did failed to change the hearts of those who saw. Jesus' blood would serve as the seal of a new covenant written on the tablets of our hearts. The Gospel of Luke tells us the apostles were heavy with sleep at this time. Both of these mountains are small by Colorado standards. These aren't 14ers. They're a couple thousand feet high, but they start from sea level. So it's still a pretty good ascent, a pretty good elevation gain. And apparently these apostles, like we see so often in the Gospels, they are exhausted. We're, we're told at times they didn't have time to eat. They didn't have time to be alone that they were inundated by crowds all the time, and it was this very busy time. And so we see them, after this big hike, and being exhausted probably already, they're tired, and that's understandable. But it was essentially upon waking that they witnessed this great miracle. So they're groggy, they're disoriented, they probably, you know, can't believe what they're seeing. Am I still sleeping? Am I dreaming? And Peter, true to his nature, is the first one to speak up. And he says, Rabbi, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Those tents can be translated tabernacles. These weren't like camping tents. These were intended as shrines to, to revere possibly even to worship Elijah, Moses, and Jesus all on the same level. But I think it's interesting that Peter, in the awesome presence of his childhood heroes, the very faces of his culture and heritage, Jesus gets demoted to rabbi, rabbi, teacher. And that's a, that's a title of reverence. That's a title of respect for sure. But that is a hard step back from what we saw earlier where you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And sometimes in the presence of some other influence, something else that we might value, Jesus comes down. And that's not the way it should be. A tabernacle, like I said, is this place of worship, a habitation for God to dwell. That's how God referred to the 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 tabernacle that would be constructed eventually, um, well, that followed the Israelites around in the wilderness, but then was set up in Jerusalem before the temple. Essentially, though, all tabernacles or tents of our own making are temporary and transient. Jesus is not calling us to a temporary dwelling place. This is not our home. God is calling us to an eternal dwelling place not made with hands. 
So what Peter is suggesting here is that these three men be revered. These three men, again, two men and Jesus, be revered, honored, and possibly worshipped alongside Jesus. And, and honestly, I'm not one of these guys. I don't want to be too hard on the apostles. I think Peter did this with the best of intentions. I think that he saw something. He was honoring something that was worthy of a degree of honor. Moses and Elijah, I think his heart, in a sense, was in the right place. He wants to make a tent for Jesus, the rabbi now. <laughs> and, and that's a great, I, I mean, again, if you, have to, if you understand their culture, there's nobody better than Moses. There's nobody higher than Moses. So like he's, he's really thinking that, um, you know, Moses at the end of his life, he promised that another prophet would come like me. And I think Peter's maybe even making that association and saying that, that Jesus is a continuation of that and a fulfillment of that promise, the Messiah. But they still saw the Messiah as a son of David, kind of less than David in a sense. We have Moses represented here. Now that would be Moses is representing the rituals, the rules and regulations, the bloody animal sacrifices that can never take away sins. That system had priests as mediators. You couldn't go to God face to face. You couldn't go to God on your own. You had to go through one of the priests. They were mediators and teachers, and they served the people, but they were not their saviors. Elijah represents the prophets. These thundering, fearful revelations from God, these dire warnings, fire from heavens, miracles, but ultimately, the prophets were also just messengers, a type of mediator between man and God, that they spoke for God to the people. But when they died, their death was the end of their message. And looking at this idea of tents and tabernacles, we have to ask, what tabernacles have we made? What shrines are we setting up beside Jesus? When we do that, we don't elevate the Lord or our relationship with him. We bring him down. And not only do we bring him down, we keep ourselves down and we stunt whatever growth he intends for our lives. And guys, this can be shrines to good things. Things that we think are valuable, credible, maybe things that we were raised to, to honor. Things like family, ministry, jobs charity or volunteer work and these things are all great in their right context but they're not the means to salvation none of these things and when we add something like that to try to what we're doing by that in a sense is we're trying to elevate ourselves but we're not elevating ourselves we're keeping ourselves down we're bringing christ down to another level now right as peter so i mean i don't want to move on from that too quick Let's be careful about that. Let's be careful about what tabernacles we're trying to set up. Let's ask God, is this an idol in my life? Is this thing, even though it's a good thing? And always checking back with the Lord. Is this something that you want us to do? And, and to Peter's credit, he doesn't go over there and just start building tabernacles. He asks God first, and he gets a definitive answer. <laughs> so cool, in a sense. He gets the answer. 
Not an answer he, ins- he, he expected. And I think that is a model for how we should approach these things. We want to do something, go to God first. He will answer us if we're true. Jesus says, seek and you'll find. Ask and you'll receive. Knock and the door will be open. But sometimes we think, okay, this is an ancient text with so much in it. It doesn't tell me if I should marry this person or that person or if I should take this job or that job. It's just not that specific. It's very general. But it will. It will. If you have faith and if you go to God with those kind of questions, what should my life be about? What should I be doing? God will answer those questions every single time in time, in faith. So right at that time, like I said, God's going to answer Peter. He asked the question, should we do this thing? And a cloud overshadows them. And it's at this point, this, this voice booms out of the cloud. It's obscure. It's scary. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. They immediately abandoned construction. Right? They, they tore up the blueprints, whatever these tabernacles were going to be. They, they, they dismissed that immediately, and they fell on their faces before God. And looking up, they saw Jesus only. And guys, that is the crux of this message here this morning. It's truly Jesus only. One of the things that I looked at to study as a resource was Charles Spurgeon has a, has a sermon. Um, you know, this um, long-deceased theologian, great pastor, um, wrote a sermon called Jesus Only. And it's, it's a long, it's a tedious read for sure, but it's a, gr- it's a great read. I would recommend that. Look it up online. I might have a link to it if you want to read it. But they saw Jesus Only. And he takes that fact and just expands on it. And it's a, it's a really, really great sermon. Matthew, it doesn't, this isn't recorded in Mark, but in Matthew, it tells us that Jesus came and touched them, saying, as they were prostrate on their face, terrified, he came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. That's such a perfect picture of who our Lord is. He's tactile. Again, he likes to embrace people. He touches people. We saw that with the healing of the blind man earlier, that he wants to get his hands on us. He wants to to be involved in our life in this very tactile and intimate way. And he comes and touches them, assures them. And sometimes, guys, when we're in that place, right, someone putting their hand on your back, something doing that, and we see that that's Jesus' heart. When we can hear that word, Rise and have no fear. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. When we can hear that and stop building shrines, when we can relinquish our pride, our expectations, when we humble ourselves before our loving Savior and see him only and feel his touch and take his outstretched hand, a hand that was pierced for our sake, then and only then can we be truly free then can we experience that exodus, that journey into the land that God intends for our life, both here and in the life to come. There's a a psalm, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. 
it, when we get to that place where we can hear him only and put aside all this garbage that's flooding us from the society that we live in, from all these different ideas, sometimes even from people close to us, that's when we can be free and experience that, mo- that, that exodus that Moses had begun. So the next thing I want to get into, because it is just so amazing, um, this account, and we can't really miss it if you're familiar with what we're talking about with Moses and the Old Testament, is the account here mirrors, parallels very closely to the account in Exodus 24, where Moses goes up onto the Mount, si- Mount Sinai into the cloud and receives the law from God. And there's some very clear parallels that happen there. If you, I would encourage you to read that scripture, read verse 24, read it alongside the scripture, and see how many parallels you can pick out. They're both on a mountain. There's both the cloud and on and on and on. But I would encourage you to do that. But Jesus literally fulfilled hundreds of prophecies regarding his incarnation, his life, his suffering and crucifixion, and his resurrection to glory. We remember there's all these, all these kind of hard prophecies that he actually did. We know that there was prophecies of the very day that he would enter Jerusalem, he, and he fulfilled that prophecy. Prophecies regarding his lineage. Prophecies regarding, we remember the prophecy that the Savior would ride in on a donkey. He did that. So he kept all these prophecies, and there's literally hundreds of those. That's a worthy study as well. He also fulfilled the law and his perfect sinless life. That he didn't disobey the law in any regard ever. That's why his death is able to provide salvation for us, because he satisfied the requirements that the Father had set up for righteousness. But is that it? The law and the prophets? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I think that that can be taken certainly in what we just talked about, that there were literal prophecies that he did that we can see that fulfillment. But in addition to that, there's these times in Jesus' life where he intentionally demonstrates who he was by performing and even completing or redeeming multiple Old Testament events and miracles. And some of these aren't as readily evident. But when you start to look at Jesus' life in this way, it really connects who he is as God. There are cults out there that say, well, you know, Jesus isn't really God. He's either this or that. And there's people that certainly even secular people say that Jesus was a great guy. He taught a lot of really interesting things, but was he God? incarnate but the things that he's doing not just the things he's saying the things that he's actually doing are again fulfilling some of those events that we see in the old testament i'll give you a few examples when he wandered and fasted in the desert for 40 days and overcame the devil's temptation he was redeeming the rebellion of the people of israel who wandered in the wilderness you see that connection when he walked on water He didn't do that just as a cool magic trick. He was demonstrating his control over creation. But when he walked on water and brought Peter out of the boat, 
as a type of Jonah and calm the storm, he was essentially redeeming Jonah's disobedience when he was swallowed by a fish. When he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 that we looked at um, earlier in this, in chapter 8, he was actually alluding to and completing a lesser miracle that was performed by the prophet Elijah. There was a, a miracle that Elijah performed in the Old Testament where he does a similar miracle to a lesser extent. And God is saying, he's, Jesus is, is taking over even that and doing it to this greater degree that proves who he is and connects himself to that prophetic office that Elijah had. And one that I really love is when we remember the account when Jesus is brought a woman caught in adultery. And they say, we caught her dead to rights. She's guilty. What do you say we should do? And he stoops down on the ground, and with his own finger, he starts to write in the dirt. And there's been a lot of speculation. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what he wrote. There's some speculation about what he wrote. But what I see in that is that he wrote the law. He wrote the Ten Commandments. That it was his finger of God writing that, just like he engraved the tablets on Mount Sinai. And that is what convicted those Pharisees. And when he said, you who cast the first stone, and they read, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. All those commandments written there, they were convicted in their heart, and they walked away. And so we see that he's actually fulfilling these things in a way that before God could be incarnated as a man were impossible to communicate. Now, and that dirt that he wrote on, another kind of parallel, that's what we're made out of, guys. That's what we're made out of. He wrote his law on the, again on the tablets of our hearts. We all know those things in our heart. He's writing those commandments on us in a sense in that example. But now on this Mount of Transfiguration, it is, it's, it's so cool. He, it's not Moses that descends the mountain with the tablets. It's God himself that descends to the people. And if you remember that account, Moses comes down and the people are engaged in all this sin and he throws the tablets down out of anger and they break. He actually has to go back up and get a copy later on. But now... It's God himself coming down, himself the word of God, himself the tablets, who would, in effect, later on, be broken for the sin of the world. It's no longer God saying, whoever touches this mountain will die. On Mount Sinai, that was one of the warnings. There was this great cloud and lightning and thunder, and it was just, it was intense. And he says, keep the people away because they're sinful. And, if they, and, and God loves us. He didn't want to destroy people. So he said, keep them away from the mountain. Don't let them come and touch the mountain because they'll die. But rather now we see God reaching down and touching his people and saying, rise and have no fear. That was only possible with Jesus coming to earth as a man. We see God, instead of instructing Moses how to construct tabernacles, that was part of his time up on the mountain of Mount Sinai, was here is the plan that I will show you to make these, these shadows and symbols of what the kingdom of God was like, what salvation was like. Instead of God instructing how to make tabernacles, this earthly tent, 
God points the disciples to Jesus, the express image of God, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the place where we meet God. There is no other way. Jesus is, in, in effect, that tabernacle now, that dwelling place of God, the holy of holies. He's the conduit through which we meet God. Now, the last couple verses, it's interesting. He says, and, and Jesus would do this a few times, tell no one about this until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. <laughs> so cool. Jesus is not going to let that go. He is not going to let that go. That's what started this whole, we've come full circle now. That's what started with Peter saying, no, 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 this can't happen to you. Jesus was telling them about that. And after all this incredible event, and after all this stuff, Jesus brings it right back to that. Until the Son of Man rises from the dead. This time, Peter is not seen arguing or rebuking. And we see he's, he's changed a little bit. They do ask a question. They do ask a question, but they've gotten to a place where now they've been hit with something so unexpected, so radical, that they're, that they're a little more willing to accept what Jesus is talking about, although they still can't quite conceive what he means by rising from the dead. To us, when we read this, it sounds so obvious, doesn't it? But to them, it still wasn't. They just they couldn't quite grasp it. They couldn't imagine it. And they asked this question about Elijah because they knew that there were prophecies concerning Elijah would come before the Messiah. One of those prophecies is in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of uh, a decree of utter destruction. So what we see in that sorry about this wind. <laughs> what we see in that is Jesus is bringing up, he says, Elijah has come, and they understood that to mean John the Baptist. And what they, everybody missed that. We look back on that. That prophecy that I just read was actually read by Gabriel the archangel or quoted by angel the archangel, Gabriel the archangel when he was speaking to John the Baptist's father. And he's prophesying that to him. But Zechariah was getting an idea of that. If you read Zechariah's um, prayer, that he says after that, it's a very, you know, he was a priest, and it's a very priestly type of prayer. And it has to do with John the Baptist preparing a way for a Messiah that was essentially a king, a conqueror that would save them from their enemies. The idea that they had of Elijah preparing for that, think about that, would be some sort of administrator, somebody that would... Um, that would prepare people's hearts in a way for that new administration to come in. They didn't expect a wild man out in the desert with a hair shirt and a leather belt that ate locusts for honey and baptized people that eventually was 
imprisoned, and beheaded. That didn't fit. They didn't, there's no way that could have been the Elijah that we've been raised to believe in. They had something totally else in mind. And Jesus also asked that question, how is it that the Son of Man is to suffer and die? And those were verses also that were very ambiguous, that they, that they were very good at looking over because that's not the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted something else because they were filtering things through their own life and their own circumstances and their own current society. And so they missed it. I think Jesus is again reminding them, you can trust me. Things are going to play out probably much different than you expect, but much, much better. Better than you can ever imagine. The Apostle Paul would tell us that God has reserved things in heaven for us that we have no conception of. And yet we get so tied up into this world. And I'm as guilty as anybody in here, if not more so. You know, just consumed by the affairs of this life. Those briars and thorns that Jesus talks of that choke us out and make us unfruitful. So I pray this morning, I mean, if the worship team were going to do a final song. I pray this morning, you know, there's, there's a couple big takeaways from this message. One is Jesus only, guys. Jesus only. Don't look to build tabernacles of your own righteousness to set beside God and think you're getting somewhere because you're not. I'm not. None of us are. We can trust him. He doesn't want that from us. He made that very clear on the mount. He doesn't want us doing that. He just wants us to hear him, to believe in him, and to have no fear. The other big takeaway Things are not going to play out like we expect, guys. (laughs) They're not. And that's the best possible thing. We don't want them to play out like we want. We think we do, but we don't. And I know those of us that have walked with the Lord for a long time, we can look back, and it's always in retrospect, right? Thank you, God, that this thing that I thought was so terrible happened to me back then. Thank you that that happened. Because look how you used it for good. Look how, you know, I remember when COVID first hit and just what it did to our church. And look at all of you out here now on this beautiful day. Because we had this amphitheater, because God gave Sean this vision years ago to build this place. Now we have this awesome place that now beyond this whatever pandemic we supposedly are still suffering in, right? They want us to believe it. But here we are. Things have played out in such a better way than we anticipated. And we can trust him in that. It's all in. So... Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you again that we can trust you and have faith in you. Let us look at this event and see your glory and see your goodness and see how much we can trust in you, how much we can put our lives in your hands without reservation, Lord. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.